0: people in my last company thought I was a genius and made me feel like a genius and the company failed. And so what is the truth behind that? The truth is I wasn't a genius and quite possibly no one actually ever thought that. The truth is that I never created uh, an environment or culture where people felt completely confident to tell me that they disagreed, that they thought what I was doing wrong. They thought that I wasn't growing fast enough. All of the things that are like really helpful developmental feedback.
1: Welcome to Secret Leaders from Kindling Media. We're here to help entrepreneurs succeed wherever you are in your journey, even if you haven't launched anything yet. I'm Will Stoloman, the head of podcasts over here. And this is the second episode in a series where I get to grill our host and my boss, Dan. It's an employee dream. We're doing this because our listeners have said they want to get to know Dan better. Plus, Dan's building his startup Heights in public. So we thought this was a great opportunity to show what it's really like being a founder and for him to share some of his biggest learnings about business building. Dan's a happy boy right now because Heights has enjoyed a few record sales days. And they've just hit a milestone of £250,000 in monthly recurring revenue, or MRR. But this episode isn't really about Heights today. It's about how Dan and his co-founder Joel even decided that Heights was the business they wanted to launch, and of all the different options. How do you tackle a question like that? And it's also about what to look for in a co-founder, and how to get through tough times with them. There's some really useful tips in here, which I'll be using if I ever launch a startup again. At the end of the first episode with Dan, which came out on January 18th and is worth checking out so you've got context, we were hearing about the demise of his previous startup, Grabble, which had pivoted into a B2B tech play called Mobula. Dan and Joel had a big decision to make. They could either raise money to try and turn Mobula into a success, or tell their investors it was the end of the road and giving what was left of their money back. So, what did they do?
0: First and foremost, we went for advice. So, it's worth saying that we didn't really know what to do in this situation, right? And we were very lucky because of the podcast, because of relationships that I'd built, but also because of actually the success that Gravel had had in its short period of time. You know, we mentioned some of the amazing things we were able to do and and people we were able to meet. We did have the opportunity to speak to people who had been through sticky situations themselves. And um, what I think would have been a disaster is turning up into a meeting with our VCs and our investors who've backed us and just going in and trying to handle that conversation. Instead, I went to Michael Acton Smith of now Calm fame. But at the time, you know, Calm was, um, you know, he'd been doing it for maybe two or three years, but it wasn't the global smash hit it is today. Because I knew that he had been through something quite similar at Moshi Monsters. Or mind candy, as the company is called. And so one of the benefits, I think, of being an entrepreneur who is willing to put yourself out there and say, I have been through hard times and this is what actually happened and these were the challenges of it, is that you're actually able to help people, right? You're able to consciously and actively actually say, this is how I can help other people in theory and this is what they could come to me for. So because Michael had demonstrated vulnerability in the past and frankly, we were at a crossroads in a difficult situation, We were able to go to him and say, listen, we've got a really tricky conversation coming up. We've got money in the bank, but we are failing. And we know that things are going badly and we kind of hate doing it. So what do we do? I'll never forget, we sat with him in Soho for a few hours and he gave us some unbelievable advice, which it is worth saying, like we literally did to the T. He said, when you get into that meeting room, like firstly, you have to be clear about what you want. So what do you want? Right, And I think this is the most important thing. He's like, you two have to decide together what you want, and that is the decision you have to work towards, and the outcome. And you might not know all of the detail in between, but you need to know very clearly like what is the outcome you're looking for. Is it to carry on? Is it to raise more money? Is it to wind things down? And we had clarity between the two of us. It was to wind things down. It was to stop doing what we were currently doing because it wasn't fulfilling us. It wasn't making us happy. We were clearly not competent or good at it either, So like all of the reasons, we tried, we failed, let's get on with it. So first and foremost gave us an opportunity to talk together and say that is the outcome we're looking for, clearly. So right, then in that case, you walk into that meeting and what they'll do, because they'll have asked you for a little agenda and and a bit of spiel first, what they'll do is they'll they'll want to tell you where they stand and their agenda and they will want to dictate the meeting and you can't let that happen. So he's like, at any point, you have to go in there and very clearly and confidently straight up say, Before we start the meeting, we just want to declare, and then you declare the exact terms of what you're looking to get to. This is what we are doing, this is where we've got so far, this is how it's going, and this is the outcome that we're considering at the moment. We're not willing to do X, Y, and Z, and these are the reasons why. Taking that advice was so valuable because I could see in that meeting immediately that they did come in, they started trying to speak, they started trying to basically put assumptions on us and stuff, which is understandable, and we interrupted them which I would never do usually with investors, we interrupted them in like literally the first two sentences and said, excuse me, I want to stop. We actually want to go first and this is what we're going to say. And we just went into it, you know, sweating and stressed and all of this stuff. But I often think back to that meeting because I actually think that what could have happened is they would have dictated it. And in moments of extreme awkwardness, deep upset, lots of confusion, etc., it's hard to find your backbone actually. And it's quite hard to find the character that it really takes to tell people, including ones that have given you money, how you really feel about stuff and what really happens. And ultimately, if you think back to times in your life when you're in these situations, quite often, if you let other people start to convince you and charm you and do things like tell you that, no, I reckon you are pretty good at this. And no, no, don't worry. You guys can do it. We've seen this before. You guys are great. And actually, you've got all the skills that you need to carry on doing this. Just keep going. That is all their agenda, and it might have been a charm offensive. I'm not saying that's the approach I would have taken, right? They might have said, you guys are absolute pricks and you have to do it. I don't care. But let's give them benefit of the doubt and suggest that they were going to go with a charm offensive and convince us of all the reasons we needed to carry on. Those moments take genuine character and backbone, and it was a kind of aspect of my character that I hadn't really accessed before. Getting the advice from someone that's been in this situation before as well and being told how to handle it really clearly was so valuable, so I'll always thank Michael for that. And the outcome of the meeting was exactly the outcome we were driving for, which was, we're not going to do this anymore. What I didn't expect was what happened next. I thought they would say, okay, fair enough, guys. Uh, Well, it is what it is. We can't force you. And this is the other thing that's worth all listeners listening to. No one can force you to do anything in your life including your investors. I mean, just to be super unprofessional and clear right now, these are private companies. So legally, you know, often a limited company, there is limited liability for which you can do. Never, ever, ever suggest that anyone should do anything other than the work that makes them look back and feel proud of themselves, one way or another. So never do anything that compromises your morals, never do anything that makes you look back on yourself and reflect and think, God, I really let myself down there. And so obviously logically stands to reason don't do anything illegal, don't be a prick, be a really great human being in every kind of sense. But flip side is also true, legally no one can force you to turn up and work every single day on something that you've tried and failed and feel like you can't do anymore. So with money in the bank, that was actually the paradox we were in. How do we actually get out of this company which hasn't run out of money? Because startups that run out of money are a foregone conclusion, you wind them down. Our situation was actually really different. We had £750,000 in the bank, so an enormous amount of money by most standards. But we'd lost conviction on what we were doing. We'd lost the interest and appetite to continue doing what we were doing. And we certainly didn't want to work in this market sector. So we were in a really tricky spot. And we did the only thing that we thought was logical, which was we said, we're going to give you back the money. So all of the money that was left would be split out across the cap table. So their investors would have got X and you know, the angel investors would have got Y. And that was our scenario. Instead, what happened was, I guess, what we didn't anticipate at all, which is they said, we would actually like you to keep the money and go away for three months. I think emphasis on that and go away. <laughs> go away for three months and come up with a new idea and pitch us that new idea and tell us and let go of everyone, let go of all your liabilities, let go of your office, your lovely office in Shoreditch, like all this stuff let go of everyone and everything, go right back down to a minimal cost base of just you two and tell me what you are proposing. In three months, come back here and present your business proposition to us. And if we like it, we'll sign off on it. And if we don't, then and it doesn't look like it bears the right opportunity, then we will ask for the money back. How's that for a deal? And we were like, yeah, I mean, that actually sounds like quite an amazing deal. So this is the surprising place that we left it. And sorry, just a button. Did that happen in the meeting? Yeah, it all happened in the meeting. I can't remember, if I'm honest with you, if we said yes to their proposition in the meeting. Um, We certainly did quickly after the fact. But they made that counteroffer in the meeting, yeah. And there was three partners, right? So there were three partners in the meeting that were all there. Um, But the managing partner who owns the fund was the main one in there who made the suggestions. So I think also like, you know, the red tape was kind of like there already, like the people that were there to make the decision. And to be honest with you, I would be surprised if, I think they would have taken a different tack, but I think because um, we came in with one solution and one solution only, they kind of twisted it from one solution to a new opportunity. And look, what I've learned later in life, you know, for anyone that's looking to emulate this kind of like crunch talk, I have learned- Uh, from other people from talking around it, this kind of proposition actually really favours a venture capitalist's business model as opposed to an angel investor's. So for an angel investor, if you've spent two-thirds of the money and you want to give up and you don't really think you've got a good opportunity to go ahead or whatever, an angel investor, and that you offer to give them the money back, an angel investor will obviously rather have a third of the money back than you basically spend the rest on a complete unknown at this point that they never would have chosen to invest in the first place. Whereas for a venture capital fund, they're making so many big bets. A lot of those bets are random. A lot of those bets have like a variety of outcomes. And a venture capitalist is ultimately mostly just betting on people. And for the ideas from those people to come off in a venture scale, venture kind of return way of 100 or 1,000x, you need people to be super bought in and motivated. So if you sit on the side of the table from them, taking £750,000 back of like a £100 million fund is literally an admin headache. Where do they allocate it? How many forms do they need to sign? How much do they need to spend on legal to get their LPs, who are their, um, their investors in the fund, signing off on it? It's actually um, an admin headache. So this is a bit of a, a thing I realized after the fact, which is if you're listening to this and you have venture capitalists on your board, etc., this is totally a card to play, confidently, because they have to spend their time optimizing their winners, not their losers. And at this point, we're a loser. So for them to spend any more time on us or this situation would have been a sunk cost fallacy, which is you know trying to make it work and, and, and recouping the losses and all of this stuff, just not worth it for them. Whereas an angel investor would rather have the money back in their pocket and just be glad that it didn't go to zero. So it's good and helpful to learn and tap into the two types of psychologies. And whilst we had VCs and angel investors on our cap table, you know we needed a majority vote to get this scenario to go through. That basically meant we only had to convince like two or three other angels on top of our venture capitalists and ourselves to get that 75% shareholder approval that we needed to move forward like this. So it was a really surprising turnaround, but it gave us three months. And that was uh, more than enough to get started.
1: And do you remember what happened straight after the meeting? Did you and Joel go straight to a pub? Because that's quite a turnaround in sort of, I imagine, your mood, like the hot, your future. Like suddenly you've gone to like a point where you can, you can play on and from feeling trapped to where you can play.
0: I know exactly what we did. Great question.
1: I think we were really overwhelmed. I
0: remember exactly what we did. We went to see, this is very random. Um, we walked to Angel, we had dinner, and then we went to see a film.
1: <laughs>
0: we went to see Sicario 2, now that I remember, which is all about hitmen, only because it was the only thing on at the time. And, like, frankly, I think the two of us were just like so mentally exhausted. We didn't do anything fancy. We went to like a Wagamama and maybe a Wetherspoons for a pint in like that center in Angel, and then just went to like whatever film was on literally the moment we'd finished it because. It was all very mentally draining. So at dinner, you know, we had to talk about, like, what's our plan to communicate with the team in the next morning? Um, but then after that, we were like, you know, I want to spend time with you still because it's an exciting new chapter in our lives, but also it's mentally taxing. We have to do some pretty terrifying stuff tomorrow, like fire everyone. So let's just go see
1: a film and sit next to each other in silence, which is what we did. I get it. I get it. So you and Joel have you have been through a lot together. What do you think was the lowest ebb of your relationship, when you seemed like furthest apart? I would say, actually, just in the aftermath
0: of this experience, actually. And I think the reason that it was like that is because I think there was a lot of stuff unsaid over many years. And I think that that is the culmination of two ambitious people Not necessarily being deliberate enough about certain things in culture that make or break a team. Mostly feedback. You know, we got a good direct relationship with each other, but because neither of us was ultimately responsible specifically for and directly for culture and values and anything to do with that, which in reflection, one of, if not both of the founders should be extremely deliberate about these things, And I've talked before in the last episode, I think, you know, the reason we had a good culture at Grabble till we didn't is because it was just a huge success. So things were just growing all the time and it was exciting and everyone wanted to work with us. And you don't really need to think much about culture or building things in those moments. It just all happens, but it unravels really fast. Whereas as a result, we hadn't built like good feedback culture. We hadn't been that obvious about the main things. If I was doing something that was like, an annoying thing one day and a bad behavior by the next week and ultimately like a shitty habit a month on and a career-defining like bad character trait is what that magnifies into over the course of a year. You know, he'd never really found the opportunities or the spaces to tell them to me. And so they just build and build, right? And it's obviously a two-way street, but I think I certainly was the worst culprit out of the two. And so after we failed and we'd let go of everyone... Um, we did find everyone new jobs. We made a real intention, and we were really clear, by the way, to our investors as well. Thank you for these three months. This is how we are going to play it out in theory. But the first month is going to be unwinding. So we were like, we are going to unwind. We're going to let go of everyone. We're going to try and help everyone find new jobs. We get out of all of our contracts, our leases, sort the legal, the tech of our product. Like all of these things, they take time, and we're going to do those things, and then we're going to take a week off. It'll be really distracting trying to build from scratch with any of these things hanging over our heads. So they agreed and we're like, we don't know how long that stuff takes, but call it four or five weeks. So that is the assumption. And that is basically how long it took. But after we had let go of everyone and done that bit, there was a sort of moment where, you know, suddenly it was like, right, what should we do next? And by the way, you know in terms of process, we had a we had our board member from the VC you know checking in with us every two weeks just we had to give written updates. we had to meet them once a month and tell them what we were up to, which is understandable, right some kind of accountability and actually it was very helpful, if I'm honest, having an external person to keep you accountable to what you're working towards actually very useful in a time like this. But I had a bit of a wobble because after we'd let go of everyone and all, all the rest of it, I think it was partly the fact that Joel was... The way that Joel and I research stuff is entirely different. So I'm very uh, emotionally driven. So I want to solve the world's problems. that at a human level, things that hurt people, that affect people. And so I, you know, and I'm, you know, one of those uh, bleeding heart type idiots. So mental health and the environment were like just super interesting things to me and that's kind of how I was focusing all of my energy. This in mental health, that's on the environment. This in mental health, that on the environment. Whereas Joel's very much like right let's look at the market trends on Mintel and let's have a look at where the markets are moving and what the opportunity spaces are and all of that stuff and you know I just can't get out of bed for a fucking Mintel report. Now understandably like you should be using market research to see where the world is going and and that's how you inform really good strategic thinking in business but we did have this like really interesting wobble together where i was like i mean in the end he basically created a spreadsheet of things which uh, had a column called dan filter and basically the summary of this was like joel was willing to do any business literally in the world as long as like strategically there was some good insight or logic as to why whereas Dan was kind of like the baby with a rattle filter where it's like bam bam like no I won't do any of these things so it sort of like painted me out in my mind to be a bit of a stroppy child but it was also the reality where I was just like no and I think it was just like his consistent optimism for some of the most boring things I've ever heard of that just made me think like oh god like actually like maybe we're just not the right business partners at all like we feel so diametrically opposed in what we think like a life well spent is and like where to go and enjoy your day i think this is like an important distinction like we both think it's a god-given right to turn up to work especially in one that you have co-founded and feel like you love what you do And I think we both totally agree on that insight and think that that is the most important thing ever when you're working. You should be passionate and excited to go to work that day and solve the problems. The the challenge and the difference between us is to be intellectually challenged is his idea of turning up to work every day and loving it. So the harder and more complex the challenges and the problems, the more he is likely to turn up and love work every day. Whereas I really need there to be like a meaningful outcome to a human being at the other end and all this stuff. And if I can see that someone is actually giving me feedback that something I've produced in the world has helped them, then I'm personally motivated to go out and do that work the next day. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner, Vanta, comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more getting you audit-ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. So we ended up bickering and then we ended up just being like, well, this is, you know, I just said to him, listen, I really, really think the one avenue we have not actually had the direct conversation about is whether you or I are good business partners because we just failed. So, you know, you could say that we're not good business partners. You think about things a real, like certain way and I think about them a really different way. Sometimes that's good, and sometimes it's bad, and we don't really know the unknown, right? We don't know if we are good or, or if there aren't better people for us to partner with. All we do know is that we don't work well together enough to get a good outcome. So I would just put it out there that maybe we should also look at the option of not carrying on together. And, it, and I said to him, if that's the case, I would be happy to walk away, incidentally. Um, because that would be my decision and I would be happy to help you find the right co-founder and take on all of this stuff and I would just like find a way to start again. But like that would be my suggestion. He came back and said a very insightful point, which I've actually, it's always stuck with me and I actually could not agree more, which is that over the last few years, whether it's been good or bad or up or down or challenging or not, obviously we've been through quite a lot together And the number one thing that we couldn't guarantee in another co-founder that we can guarantee in ourselves um, is trust. And every single other thing that you could get in a relationship you can work on, skills, connection, all of these things, but trust takes so long to build between human beings. That is one thing I don't think I'd ever doubt you on and, and vice versa. And so isn't it worth us just seeing actually what are all of our blind spots? And what are all of our weak spots? And is there an opportunity here for us to just get them out in the open and say, these are things we're going to deliberately work on rather than hoping that the next partners that we both find we can trust and don't have any of these blind spots too? So it was a really, really meaningful conversation. That actually I found super helpful because also what it meant was I was like, right, you know what? That gives me an opportunity to say, I'm going to go on a personal development journey. I'm going to learn all of the things that are really bad for me. Sorry, bad about me which I think, you know, in our culture as well, Like I'd been hidden from. You know, people in my last company thought I was a genius and made me feel like a genius, and the company failed. And so what is the truth behind that? The truth is I wasn't a genius, and quite possibly no one actually ever thought that. The truth is that I never created uh, an environment or culture where people felt completely confident to tell me that they disagreed, that they thought what I was doing wrong... They thought that I wasn't growing fast enough. All of the things that are like really helpful developmental feedback. And so instead we had a culture of like quite positive reinforcement. So everyone was just super like nice and positive all the time. And actually I've only learned after the fact how stunting that is for your growth because uh, there is a concept called Johari's window. I don't know if you know it, but it's essentially like a quadrant. Um, The idea is there's the known and the unknown about what you know about yourself and what others know about you. So if you think about it, I mean, cross those all off onto like a, you know, there's four squares into a quadrant. Um, you know, you have the stuff that you know that other people know, right? So that's kind of like my LinkedIn posts or my podcast or me talking here. This is stuff that I'm aware of for myself and now I'm sharing it with the world. You'll know it too. There's stuff that you will, as my colleague, will know about me, will certainly think about me that you might not have shared with me. Um, so that is something that you know about me that I don't know about myself potentially, which is an opportunity for learning, There is also the stuff that you don't know about me that I also don't know about me, which is essentially like my unlocked potential. So the way that you think about all this stuff is like in an ideal world, like the more you cultivate a space where people are honestly open and willing to tell you the bad stuff... Those are your blind spots. So the stuff that I am not aware of um, about myself, but the stuff that you are aware of and are willing to tell me is how I get awareness in general and go on this journey of personal development and develop my blind spots.
1: So how did you do that then?
0: Uh, The only way that we could really think of, which actually was a super unusual decision, I think. And I'm really grateful for it. And I still work with this person now, it's worth saying. So we work with some leadership psychologists, Never worked with leadership psychologists in my life, but I got recommended them. I remember sharing this challenge with a friend and being like, you know, we're kind of aware that we have some baggage and we feel like it'd be really healthy to work through that baggage. I think it's worth saying that, like, you know, the high-level insight was we did not know what business we were going to run. We were in a space where we were like, but we will run another business at this point. We've just decided that together. Okay, what is the fundamental problems of our last business? We did not build a deliberate culture that was centered on clear values. Okay, why not? Well, because we weren't willing to do the work professionally and really investigate those things. Okay, cool. What are your values? Well, good question. I'm not sure I officially know the answer to that question. Okay, well, who could help us unlock all of these things? So we went and found a company called Kaya, which is C-A-I-A. And uh, Lara, who's the lead psychologist there, basically spent time with Joel and I over the period of about two weeks, and it was a great exercise because we, she basically got us into a room. She literally moderated a conversation that was essentially a space. So she made the space safe, but was like, the only way that you guys are going to be able to develop all of these things are to sort of clarify what you believe are each other's limitations What are the problems? What are the complaints? What is the baggage? Like this is the space to get it out. What is all the stuff over the last few years that you wish you'd have said to the other person that they are in a space right now in their lives that they're willing to hear and willing to write down and willing to work on? That was really helpful because obviously as best friends, as co-founders, you do like, you have utmost respect for each other, but you don't like actually have a clear space sometimes to share what's been built up. And so we kind of went to town on it, you know, literally over the course of a day. Think about it as like, you know, part therapy and part just like complaining at each other. But it was amazing because, you know, it both gave us like a long list of all of the things that were really challenging. And then we did personality psychometric tests. Using the psychometric tests, we were then able to see where our where our interests overlapped and where they didn't. We did another process that was just all about writing down the things that we care about the most. And then we had to order and prioritize the things we cared about the most, but individually, right? Right. And then the next stage of that was actually looking at, okay, well, what are the things that are crossing over here? So what are the things that are like clearly right in the top four for you both? From a values point of view, it was just so interesting using the data of the things that we individually thought were passions of ours or interests of ours, plus our psychometric data, that then whittled down essentially into three values that became our our company values. So the outcome, of all of this time spent moaning, complaining, stressing, etc., was that we started our company that we had no name for and hadn't yet gone into company development for, but we had three values of what we thought were uh, essential to uphold in the company. I mean, they weren't like perfectly crafted, but at the time they were humor and humility. We were really conscious of like what these things mean to us basically is keeping your ego in check, but also having a laugh, of course. One of them was, uh, which we've changed and renamed for all the obvious reasons, but at the time it was called um, Hustle, Don't Hassle. Uh, we had a sarcastic renaming of this one, which was um, Have You Checked Google? Because <laughs> we found that there was so many times in our journey where people would just ask us endless questions, and it all just things that we could Google. We answered them every time by Googling and then answering, and we cultivated the wrong culture, right? Anyway, so Hustle, Don't hassle, was all about, you know, do the work, have some relentless resourcefulness, and you'll get to the answer. And then the last one, actually, which, uh, you know, has pretty much maintained as well, is build trust and be
1: trusted. So these were our original three company values, By the time you're going through this session, you have decided you are going to make a company together. So you had the chat previously where you said, look, if there's someone better, we should think about that. But because you had the basis of trust, you then decided to go forward and do these sessions.
0: Yeah, exactly. It was more like because we decided this is what we were going to do, let's find someone that can help us sort of um, facilitate the best way forward. And that person then said the best way forward is for you guys to like literally get all this shit and anger and irritation and you know any pettiness or or meaningful stuff like you know everything in between get it out of your system to each other but do it in a facilitated process so she sat there with us in a room and basically facilitated it that was like one day and then another day was doing psychometric tests and doing these values things we literally did like a monday tuesday wednesday like full days 3 days in a row like a sprint by the end of those 3 days we had three values that we both knew came from us, they both were our highest ranking, overlapping areas. They both fit our own psychometric scales of the things that we genuinely can't pretend to the world we're not interested in. And so they were like three completely clear things that we could definitely agree on. And there were some things that Joel is like way more interested in and I'm not. And it's like, they didn't make it anywhere near the values list. And so it gave us like a starting framework to say, whatever we do, this is how we will behave. And then interestingly, day four was, we actually wrote interview guides, for a lot of reasons, but I won't get into it. Um, But we wrote interview guides specifically um, that were based on our values. With this trainer, Lara, um, we specifically wrote down all the questions that felt like they would demonstrate whether someone demonstrates humor and humility. Or, you know, so it's like, tell me about a time when, you know, you made a massive mistake and were actually able to have a laugh about it with your colleagues. You know, stuff like that, questions like that. And we ended up with like a whole interview guide. Now, this is one of my favorite company stories with heights because like we we did this before we had a name before we decided what business we were going to run before anything and we never used this for about a year because we didn't hire anyone for well over a year so we were able to once we were like right let's get into hiring we were able to dust off our questions and they were still completely relevant we're like yep these are the perfect interview questions thank god so it felt really aligned, but it really helped us over the next few months, like really focus our energies and give us total clarity of where we're trying to get to. So that was pretty much week one of working together again on the new business.
1: What happens next and how does that lead to, to heights?
0: Okay, so I was looking for a process. So how does one come up with a good business idea? And fortunately, one of our guests on the show from Coru Kids, Rachel Carroll, She's one of the smartest ladies that I know, and also I just like really respect her thinking. I always think that she thinks about things in a very um, clear and because she's from New Zealand kooky way, but you know, it's always entertaining and it always like makes me sit up and think. And she basically said when she was thinking about like a way a process for this, I tweaked it a little bit, but like long story short, the idea was Joel and I would sit Monday to Friday for two weeks away from each other, so remotely before remote was cool. He would be at home, I'd be at my home, and 9 a.m. Monday morning, but 9 a.m. every morning, you sit at your desk and you get ready to write down 10 ideas and you're not allowed to... And 10 ideas with a bit of fleshing them out, they could be anything at all. And you are not allowed to leave your desk, go for a wheel, do anything until you've done those 10 ideas. And so Monday, maybe some good ideas. Tuesday, maybe some better ideas. Friday, maybe they're all shit ideas, but it doesn't really matter. The point is you've got those ideas out, You're not allowed to communicate with each other throughout the week about what those ideas are. But on Friday, after you've done your 10, you meet up and you discuss what your ideas are. And you've got 50 ideas each. So there's actually 100 ideas there for you to discuss all of Friday. And then at the end of Friday, you basically look and see if there are any themes emerging. Like what are the themes that are coming out of the things that we're both interested in? Now, for Joel and I, over the 100, the two really clear themes were um, sustainability and consumer goods. So we kind of realized that we both were interested in doing a consumer business, a brand, a consumer product, whatever you want to call it. And then the other one was mental health. So these were the things that were like really, really crossing over. That was great because it then meant that on Friday, we said, okay, next week we do exactly the same process. Except this time they can only be in mental health and consumer. So, because we know those are two things and they have to be in, there has to be a way to like play sustainability into that angle because it's the other key theme that came up. It doesn't mean it necessarily has to be a sustainability brand, if that makes sense. It doesn't have to be a sustainable product company. I guess the point is we weren't trying to create B Corp, you're trying to use it as a framework. And then the next week, Monday to Friday, we wrote down our ideas. We had another hundred and we were able to like really drill them down. And in the end, we had like, I think three or four ideas. One of them was called Dawn, which is what um, was the starting point of Heights. But the one, interestingly, that uh, we got really close to doing, which sounds a bit niche and far from what we do now, but we were going to do a cleaning products business that was all about, you know, bleach is bad for the environment and it's bad and all of this stuff. I won't bore you with it, but the idea was like, how do you reinvent the consumer product good market for cleaning goods using all non-biodegradable, like biodegradable, non-hazardous, yada, yada, yada. Like all of the buzzwords and ticks, like remove the plastic, remove the microplastics, like all of that stuff. How do you do that? And then how do you get the distribution? How do you build that business? And actually, we were both really excited about that because it sounded hard sounded exciting, sounded meaningful, sounded like you could build a really cool brand in it that could like dazzle consumers. So at the end of that week, we had, like I said, we had a few ideas and then we got to work by interviewing some friends that knew more about this space. So that third week then was spent like finding out more about this stuff. And fortunately, Alex de one of our guests on Secret Leaders 2, had built a cleaning marketplace called Hassle. I was able to have a call with her, right? And just say, look, this is one of the ideas we're exploring. This is how we see it happening. These are all of our assumptions. What do you know? What do you think about it? Again, one of the reasons why research, rather than assumption, is so important in what you do is because we had this idea of, you know, you create these beautiful containers and you know you pour the stuff in a bit like e-cover or whatever, but like better and more, more advanced. And basically we had this idea of the consumer right? The typical type of consumer that would want to buy this and why wouldn't they want to buy it and on subscription and it fits through your letterbox and all of the things. She made a really valid point in her experience, building a cleaning marketplace and selling it for 30 million pounds. She was like, that is not your customer. Whatever you think it's the same mistake I made. That's not your customer. Your customer is the cleaning lady. The cleaning lady in the house dictates to the owner what they want to clean with every single house owner that has a good cleaning lady wants to enable the cleaning lady to do their job well. And she said like, that is the market dynamic, and that is what happens. And the cleaning staff do not want to be using your eco-friendly whatever, whatever, because they don't clean as well as bleach. They make their jobs harder. And on a house-by-house basis, when they are having to think about the time that they're doing and all of this stuff, it just stacks up that they make different decisions. And that is your challenge. And unless you want to be trying to solve a problem in the market working with uh, cleaners all over the world, you know, that is ultimately the challenge you're going to have. And it was just so insightful because it is one good example of how when you work with other people who have experience in a category, they will dispel for you what your actual upcoming challenges are, who your customers are, the things you'll be answering for, and all this stuff. And very bluntly, she was like, I hated doing it and I didn't find it very interesting. Would you? And I was like, "Mm, no, not based on what you just said. She's like, great, well, then move on. So, you know, one of the ways, interestingly, that we got to the idea of heights was by eliminating other ideas that actually felt like they were good at the time, but potentially weren't.
1: And so how did you go through this process? Because you've still got a bunch of ideas at this point. So can you walk us through the model, the framework for going through these ideas?
0: Yes, for sure. So quite a few ideas, but some of them involve, you know, what is your what would be the capital requirements to get them off the ground? What would be an unexpected moat for those capital requirements, actually, to begin with? We use the ICE framework, which is essentially ICE um, impact, confidence, and ease of implementation. So you give, give things a score and you figure out what would work and what wouldn't. But in reality, to narrow it down, Joel and I decided to do customer interviews. And we came up with a proposition which was uh, quite simple, which is like, look, there are lots of um, uh, busy knowledge workers just like us. So people who um, work hard, are proud to work hard, they want to get the most out of their lives, they want mental performance is important to them, they might be tired, they might be unenergized, and all this stuff. So let's interview them and find out what they currently do, how is their mental health, what do they do, what are their tips and tricks and all that stuff. And this was like actually the part where it became really interesting because we did 200 interviews. And it's worth saying, you know, I was documenting this stuff on LinkedIn as well. There's an article on LinkedIn, like if you go back far enough from me, which includes I think even the photos and the interview questions that I asked on these interview questions. And this was the process. Joel went and did 100. I went and did 100. Spent two weeks really back to back doing that stuff. It was a really, really hardcore um, couple of weeks, but it was super motivating. The idea when you do these things is you find some insights or you find something surprising you weren't really expecting. And that is exactly what happened to us. What we didn't expect was to find supplements playing into this at all. And if you imagine how it could have gone, we did go in there with our own agendas. Like we've never made, like we both were at this point taking supplements, it's worth saying. But we were both new to supplements because Joel had gut issues and I had my mental health issues. So we were new to it. And I thought that my stuff was quite niche. Uh, my insights on supplements were quite niche. But what we were learning is lots of people had certain habits around supplements and lots of people had uh, lots of intentions around them too and the stories of things that were in their drawers, basically. This is before the pandemic, so we were literally going into people's offices and so there was the office environment of what people were doing and how they were doing it. And people would actually talk about how, you know, you ask them anything else, anything else, anything else is usually the part where supplements would come up because people are talking, oh, well, you know, I try and sleep and I try and meditate and I try and do this and I try and do that. And in the end, people are like, oh yeah, actually, I mean, you know, I got vitamin D, like for my mood and, you know, I've got magnesium and I've got this and I've got that. And you're like, oh, do you take them? And you're like, well, I sort of forget really, but like I've got them just in case, but I know that's not how it works. You just get these really interesting transcripts of people saying this stuff. That actually ended up being like our really like surprising insight, essentially, which wasn't where we immediately got to. So we weren't immediately like, right, we're starting a a thing in supplements. But it was out of 200 interviews, you do like a word cloud. We saw that come up and we were like, wow, who would have thought that one? We thought it would be more like a mindfulness or something, I don't know. So this is one of the reasons why it's really important to do that market
1: research, because you uncover the unknown unknowns. When you say supplements and that came out as a surprise, was it a surprise that so many people were taking supplements?
0: I think it was important it was very surprising that so many people bought supplements and that some of those stories were around the things that they attribute to either their performance or their mental health. But it was like really an afterthought and it was really like sporadic as in the things that they took and why they took them and, and and their take and their usage of them was abysmal. So the other really key insight that everyone had was that they buy them at the start of the month and they just sit in their drawer for a few months until they have like a bit of a breakdown and they sort of remember that they're there and they start taking them again. So there were a few of these things that came up that were super helpful for us. And yeah, I mean, basically, we had like a lot of this desk research at this point. So then we did what any two responsible founders would do. We said, well, where is the capital of like learning about health and wellness and mental health and all that stuff? California. So we decided to book ourselves to go to California for a few
1: weeks, which we did, which was amazing. And this is in this three month period, isn't it?
0: Yeah, this is halfway through. So we went to California, and basically similar thing. Started researching a lot of the stuff there, and California is really ahead of its game when it comes to this stuff, especially prevention, especially talking about mental health, especially all of these things. Yeah, and the trend on on supplements and on nutrition being a part of this was really uh, night and day to the UK. So. We spent a few weeks in LA, and it's worth saying we spent $500 on supplements, which is hilarious. I've got this great photo on one of my LinkedIn posts, which is like these, like so many supplements. It's hilarious. I like still never got through most of them, obviously. But we came back, we had some decent insights, and we weren't still completely sold that this is what we would do. But the one thing that we had really learned, and I had also, it's worth saying, you know, had this really deeply personal experience over my time of curing my insomnia with supplements, and so I was already fascinated by the impact of nutrition and mental health anyway. So I was kind of gravitating towards it. But the way that I was thinking about uh, what we would do to begin with was a brain food company, um, which we did discuss a lot. So the only problem is I'm a useless chef. And so the MVP would have been disgusting anyway. But it was one of the practical considerations we had, which is like, what does a galsto or something look like? Um, but it's all about like, you know, food for your brain. So like mental health, performance, longevity, all that kind of stuff to your desk. And, you know, we looked at that properly, but economies of scale, you know, there's a bunch of things on the ICE framework, actually, that just didn't really fit our narrative and fit with our sense of reality. Now, one of the things that was unusual to us was, you know, we had cash in the bank and therefore we could invest in high quality. So... Where we learned there was a whole space was in the quality of supplements. Most people, when you're starting a brand and getting it off the ground, everyone gravitates towards, um, basically it's a race to the bottom. Because ingredients are cheap, they're easy to come by, marketing is easy, there's lots of people on pyramid schemes, there's a million different ways to sell supplements on the internet and it's not very hard. And so 99% of people will do those businesses because they don't need a big capital injection to begin with to do the opposite. Whereas we suddenly had the idea of like, well, actually, instead of creating a whole range and instead of creating lots of different products, instead of making them cheap and all of this stuff, what if we were to make what looks like the highest quality, best product out there? The only way that you would be able to do that in the first place would be to have like a bit of a war chest to begin with. You know, because the reason for this, by the way, is because to have the best ingredients, and when I say the best, I literally mean the best, to pick the best ingredients in the world and get rid of all of the caking agents and fillers and junk and all of that stuff and have these capsules that were like patented, that were, you know, slow release into your gut. So all of the things that we then researched and learned about were like the premium, premium, premium. You needed like 200 grand straight off just on the the order, right? Just to order the test batch of these things, that's how much money you would need. Now, no no self-respecting angel investors or venture capitalists are ever going to give you, and that's just 200 grand just for the product. That's no marketing, that's no testing, that's no figuring out if it's good or bad or needs tweaking no one is going to give you that money, like ever. So we were like, that's really interesting because there's only two ways that you would ever actually try and create this product then. One is you would be independently wealthy and you would decide to try and do it yourself. Or two, you'd be in a situation like us where you actually have the money, you can do whatever you want and the barrier to entry to create something at this high quality is so high, it actually creates its own moat. So using the ICE framework became a really interesting perspective. And I think, you know, Two years in, I think what separates Heights out from all of its competitors, literally probably except for Athletic Greens, is we still only have one product. And it's not because we don't have ideas, and it's not because we aren't researching and building on more. We have upgraded that one product five times. So like literally consistently upgrading our formula, doing science and research trials on it, using blood tests. like all sorts of things to continually be able to say, ours is the best product in the market, full stop. And instead of creating another one, another one, another one, another one, we will just continually work on making it the best. There's a lot of things that go into that, of course, by the way, like what does the best mean in this space? One of those things is just to make you aware, nutrients degrade, right? So they get made, like I'll give you an example, our blueberry extract, which is great for your brain because it contains anthocyanins, which are antioxidants. They get made in Italy in a blueberry farm, And they get turned into anthocyanin, which is the active compound that materializes. And that gets then shipped off to like ingredient manufacturers and, you know, wholesalers and all of this stuff. Now, from that point on, it's starting to degrade. So from that point on, the quantity that you're getting and the amount you're getting, et cetera, and its potency is X. And every month that passes, it's Y minus one month. So... Usually if you buy supplements, for example, that might contain this in a retailer, you know, you just have to, it stands to reason that it will have degraded a lot from its original point. Whereas with Heights, we reorder our ingredients every three months from fresh. And what also happens is the blueberry extract manufacturer, because they are the number one blueberry farmer for for this, like in the world, they themselves hold themselves to a really high standard. So they continually also improve their formula. So... When they do improve their formula, which by the way, most supplement providers or nutrient providers will do systematically over a period of time anyway because that is kind of why they exist, to constantly produce better quality stuff, every time they do they'll call up all of their suppliers, sorry not their suppliers, all their um, distributors and producers and say, hey, we've got this updated formula, do you want it? And most of those people would be like, well, no, we've kind of got stock for the next couple of years, so we'll get in touch with you when we do need to order. Whereas we are like, yes, every three months we'll take whatever is the most upgraded, most recent, most scientifically efficacious version of what you have. And we have that with all 20 nutrients. So we're consistently upgrading our formula. So we have a really complicated product process, which has been a nightmare at times, especially when the pandemic started. But it enables us to have the best product in the market, which then follows through to things like Trustpilot, where you have the most amount of five-star reviews of any supplement in the world, and lots of other things as well. I'm not trying to brag. I guess what I'm trying to say is, we had a very specific common sense at the time theory about how you could run this process, which we hoped would at the end, the outcome would be a logical conclusion, that if you make all the right choices at the front, and you make the difficult choices, and you do the capital investment that's required to do them that other people can't afford to do, the outcome is exponentially better. But of course, you are flying blind at the time because you don't know. And the other thing worth saying is we've never worked in this space before as well, so we had no idea if any of these things were true or were just like our hope from using logic. But one point I would say is I think the greatest asset that we have for having done this business so far quite well is our relative stupidity. So not knowing... Anything about how the space works, not knowing the decisions people usually take or are told to take, enabled us to completely reinvent the entire process based on a framework of, well, how would you make the best product, not how do people make this product, if you get what I mean.
1: Absolutely, yeah. It was what um, Daniel Schreiber, the founder and CEO of Lemonade, which, by the way, is one of my favorite episodes, he talks about, you know, they were... They didn't have a clue about insurance and that's what has enabled them to build a much better suite of insurance products. So you've gone through this journey, you've sat down with Joel, you've gone through the values, gone out to California, you've honed in on supplements, it requires capital, that gives you a moat. Presumably you're then going back to the investors who've given you this three-month window to present to them these findings. What, What went down?
0: Yes, exactly. So we didn't have any of the supplements or anything like that, obviously, in in place yet. Um, We did have the supplements from California. We did have uh, Mintel trends um, about health and wellness, obviously. We had all of the stuff you needed for the background research. We had 200 customer interviews, um, transcripts, word clouds. These things are actually super valuable because they painted a certain picture. So we went in with a deck of a company called Dawn. And the reason we called it that was we were like, you know, it feels like our own Dawn of a new beginning. So it was kind of like narcissistic. We're like, it's a totally temporary name. And we're like, listen, we don't know exactly what we're doing. We think there is a trend here. We think it's really interesting. We think that there is something to do with supplements, but we couldn't possibly tell you exactly what yet. We need to do more research. But we do believe in a space that we're creating so what we will do over the next year categorically is build an audience for whatever we do. We will get to work on um, building, we called it a human potential company at the mo- uh, at the time, by the way. So it was literally Dawn, the human potential company. And fun fact, almost everyone thought I was a recruiter. So that died a death quite quickly. But it was really, it was really interesting because to us, we were like, wow, how inspiring. And to other people, they were like, oh, what do you charge? Commission? Uh, I was like, what? Anyway, so... We went in with this pitch of Dawn, the Human Potential Company, told them how we were going to do an audience building in public, building our newsletter um, week by week, sharing anecdotes and scientific uh, research papers on how you can do one thing every week to help improve your brain. And our thesis was everyone kind of wants to um, be in a personal development journey and improve their brain one way or another. So we believe that our, our newsletter will be snappy and interesting and help bring up the right kind of people into our audience who can help us develop our product and give us insights as we grow. And obviously three months, this is kind of the point, three months is not enough to have a really clear idea. And so I think what we did really well at that point was say, here are the knowns from all the research we've done. Here are all the unknowns. So I can't sit here and tell you that we are going to launch this product by that date uh, because we don't know what the product is yet. All we do know is there's clearly demand, there's clearly an opportunity, there's clearly like what already exists in the market here. This is why we could do it differently over here. And this is why we think it would be like a really great moat because again, like having the capital makes it quite hard to come at it from the same kind of position that we would. And for all of these reasons, we believe that there is a really like powerful, meaningful and valuable brand to be built in this space. We just don't know exactly what that's going to be yet. But this is the sum of how far we've got. And it was just a PowerPoint deck. But at the end of it, They were like, okay, thank you. That was really interesting. Um, We'll get back to you. And, you know, as luck would have it, obviously we were like sweating and quite nervous because if they said, nah, jog on, we'd be giving back all the money. And that three months would be like kind of down the pan, certainly from a, you know, moat point of view. As luck would have it, two out of the three partners who we were pitching were kind of into like their own personal health journeys. And so I think like, you know, one thing I would, you know, hat tip or nod to is the fact that I do think that we were speaking to a relevant audience, which really helped. They got it. And sometimes VCs obviously are quite credited for like, you know, not investing in businesses they don't understand because they're white men and all of this stuff. In our case, the fact that they were into like human performance and were like totally, I think, psychologically interested in what our brand might uncover, I think a lot of it sounded relatable to them. And so it was quite an easy, it was a much easier um, yes than I was anticipating. It came in that night rather than the next day. And we were off to the races. Um, That uh, process, so we shut down the company and went to them in June. So I'll always remember because I got married in May. So I got married in May, shut the company down in June. And then essentially July, August, August. September, start of October, we were up and running with Dawn and we sent our first newsletter, I think maybe the first or second of November or something like that. And then, you know, we've done a newsletter every single week since. So I think that's actually been a really integral part of our journey is like building an audience with us along the way who were like really in it from day one. And I still do posts on LinkedIn or Twitter where people are like, I've literally been on your newsletter since day one. And I'm like, oh my God, I literally, I don't know these people, right? But I noticed the name. I'm like, oh, God, you have. Because you really do remember all your first (laughs) people that are on that newsletter by name, even if you never meet them.
1: That is an epic story. And did they, when the investors said yes, did they say yes with any further constraints? Like you'd had the three-month period? Because I know then it was a while until a product came out.
0: Look, to the extent of updates... And you know, actually it's worth saying like something that I'd previously think that we were bad at was giving like investor updates. Now I'm really good at giving investor updates, like Joel and I write an update every single month goes to all of our investors, keeps people really in the know, we're very available for our investors. These are lessons that we learn the hard way by getting it wrong. So you know, they were very much like, you know, it's a tight leash, but also as long as you're communicating, we're okay with it. And that was kind of it. You know. Also, it's worth saying these particular investors who are no longer on our cap table what's a story for another day. And I think we should do an episode on how you buy out certain investors because it's exactly what happened with, with them. I think it's worth saying that, you know, they were tech investors. So lesson learned as well. They were tech investors. They invested in what we were doing. This was really different. I think they thought it was a really exciting opportunity, but actually it really transcribed quite quickly how not interested professionally they were in this and how... They just prefer what they know, which is understandable because they never actively chose to invest in this. So engagement did go down. And to be totally honest, um, for quite a long time, we were lucky. We kind of just enjoyed the freedom that we had, right? Like They would sort of like forget that we had a board meeting. We'd turn up, they wouldn't turn up, and we wouldn't tell them. <laughs> so we, were, we weren't like, oh god, you weren't at the board meeting, you wasted our time. We're like, I mean, if we're lucky, they'll forget the next one too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, we get that. <laughs> Well, the things you look back on in business and laugh at, right? But seriously, I learned a lot from this session. Solid practical advice on business ideas and co-founders, which are really at the heart of starting a company. Next time, we're going to focus on the birth of heights. How do you take a business from naught to one? That's the name of a book, by the way, from Peter Thiel, the co-founder of PayPal and Palantir. It's worth a read if you want to know how to make that leap. See you next time.